Hello and welcome back to Happy Vault Radio. This is season seven and today Barry and I had the amazing opportunity to speak with Fleur Ruckley. Fleur is a circular economy and resource management consultant. She's been consulting on all things sustainability and environmental for many, many years and today she works with Topolytics. During this conversation, we really benefited from all her years of experience, getting loads of interesting insights and case studies. How did you find it, Barry? I really like Fleur and I really enjoyed this conversation. She's one of those people who embraces the complexity and who really understands the changes and necessary work that we need to do in order to make everything more circular. And at the same time, stays really positive and has all this energy for it and so is able to sort of straddle the detail of what data do we need to gather for to solve this specific problem and fit that within the context of this wider systemic change. She talked about her experiences and how that led her to try and think or really think about where people fit into all of this. So yeah, it was an amazing conversation. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation as well. And particularly for me, when we were talking about sort of theories of change and like how people can see impact being made and what that means for how we approach change. Do you know, like sometimes I feel like we talk about circular economy a lot and how can we possibly find new things to talk about, but we always do. (laughs) And like, this is just a really interesting example of that because I think the insights that Fleur brought from her, you know, decades of experience, they're so important when we're doing this zooming out thing that we're looking at this season so I really appreciated that and there was one thing in that conversation that really stood out for me one among many actually but one thing was when she used the phrase seeing something as a choice and realizing that it's a choice she at the time was talking about individual choice but we also talked about how that applies to businesses and I think that's an important concept so I hope that listeners pick that out and also share with us and share with the world <laughs> what else was good about this conversation. Definitely. And so without any further ado, let's meet Fleur. I'm Fleur Ruckley. I am Head of Implementation at Topolytics. My background is circular economy, waste management, environmental management broadly. And yeah, looking forward to talking to you. Awesome. Welcome to Happy Porsche Radio. So let's start at the beginning, if that's okay. What started you on this journey of looking at circular economy and it's led you to where you are now? It's hard to know with circular economy. I suppose what started me on the journey was an interest in, I guess, a passion in environmental education originally. I was working in South Africa on sort of social impact assessment, environmental management type stuff and education work. And I started getting involved in environmental education as it was at the time and the kind of way people interact with the environment, I suppose, and how their environment interacts with them. So I was doing a project on medicinal plants, basically. So how people, traditional healers interact with medicinal plants and how that interaction impacts on the environment. So that led me into an interesting space. I came back to the UK and discovered that environmental management and kind of interaction with the environment was a very different place. It was very focused on companies and on people rather than the environment. And it was very focused on a kind of transactional interaction, I suppose, with the environment. So I started working for a charity called Global Action Plan, who was looking at behavior change and how to actually engage people within organizations of different sorts to actually change their behavior to have a positive impact. And and understanding a lot of what we did was to understand how that behavior came about and how we could sort of start to tweak it and change it and, and how companies could interact with their stakeholders, whether it's their staff or their suppliers or their clients to start to really change those behaviors and have an impact. So I guess ultimately that starting point was back there when 
certainly I never knew about circular economy, it hadn't ever come into my vocabulary. It probably then progressed and developed further at the University of Edinburgh, where I was for 11 years. And that, to me, was the point at which I could kind of step back and look at the concepts and look at how we were doing. And organizationally, we'd kind of come from, I don't know, 20% recycling up to sort of 80% recycling and, and no waste to landfill, or very little hazardous waste to landfill. And it still wasn't enough. I suppose it was having students and having kind of young people really driving forward and having a really open management system that where universities really want to do better. And also you've got people researching it and you've got people looking at things from different angles allowed us to kind of step back as an organization and just say, okay, what, what are we doing? What could we do better? What's happening within biological science? What's happening within the business school? And, and how can we engage differently in order to step back away from that kind of whole, again, fairly transactional, we produce stuff and let's do the best we can after we've used it to how how can we actually change things? How can we actually do things better? How can we change the processes? So I, I guess it's, yeah, developed over time to the point at which a lot of people in circular economy are in just recognizing that it's not enough to look at things at the end of life. We've got to change things really fundamentally. Yes, yes. One of the things I really enjoy about doing this podcast is hearing a little bit about people's stories and how everybody's come very different life journeys and so on. But the people we speak to have broadly come to the same place you're just describing and kind of I think that's cool. I just enjoyed the journey. So there's a couple of things you said there. One is early stage. You talked about coming back to the UK and the environmental management stuff being focused on people and companies rather than on sort of the broader environment. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And if that's something you've seen change since? Yeah. I mean, I suppose what I mean is when I say people and companies, what I mean is that kind of, again, it's that technological application. So fixing things, applying knowledge to kind of fix problems after they've happened or to mitigate those problems as opposed to changing the system. The difference with the UK, for me, the difference with the UK and South Africa in the late 90s, as it was then, in South Africa, it was you know straight out of the first democratic elections. And it was really all about people and participation and engagement and, and how to just shift the conversation, how to have a conversation, how to shift that conversation. But in the UK, it was different. It was very much kind of everybody had their places and you learn to skill and you use that skill and you applied it in your space. It's hard to explain why for me. I kind of looked around and thought, oh, I'm not quite sure what I've done because I've come back expecting, you know, or gung-ho, expecting to be able to apply this to a space that I understand more, you know, where I've spent a lot of time and, and actually the system doesn't allow me to in many respects. And there was literally maybe two organizations that I found, Global Action Plan being one of them and probably Groundwork at the other one at the time who were actually doing anything anything trying to actively involve people. So it's more about how people interacted in that space. You had some people doing some ecology and or doing some bits on biological sciences, but it really wasn't, you know, let's really try and engage how people are interacting in that space and, and the impact that, that has and, and changing that whole conversation. I couldn't see it. I mean, it probably did exist in niches, but I couldn't see it when I came back. It wasn't visible. It wasn't being talked about. And that's something that's so important when we talk about what I think the way most people define circular economy now is more about the broader scope of things. It's like you and I have talked about seeing everything through the lens, like when seeing, having sort of starting to think about circularity in a very broad sense, and suddenly that becomes the lens through which you see everything. And so maybe that's kind of what you're touching on there. It's not just a, let's do this mechanical recycling or whatever process, but we need to think about the deeper societal and systemic and economic and everything principles. Is that fair? Definitely. I think that lens is a really interesting space. People quite often will be seeing, I mean, we're all technically seeing the same thing. 
but we're looking at it differently. We're understanding it differently. We're considering different things. So, and you can apply that within a company or just within your own life. So what I see when I look at something, it's the same thing that you're seeing, but what I see is different. And I'm seeing it through a lens of potentially a lens of understanding that it's possible to do something different, I guess, is part of it. And also a desire to do something different, which, you know, can feel a little bit evangelistic sometimes, but it's certainly not meant to. But I think we all, you know, if you ask somebody, it's going to sound a bit, I'll give you an odd example in a minute. But if you ask somebody deep down, they'll always normally some people won't, but most people will say yes, that they want to do, they want something to be better. They want it to be great for their kids. They want it, you know, they want life to improve. They want an organization to have less impact, but deep down, they're not necessarily seeing that as something that they can have an impact on. And I think that's the difference. I think a lot of people who work in circular economy look at things and say, okay, what's happening? What does that mean? How is that caused? And what can we change? And I think it's that ability to kind of just dig right through. That's not suggesting that anybody has all the answers because I don't think anybody does. It's more you're willing to ask the questions and recognize that there might be an alternative, you know, an alternative future, something that could change. That's a really interesting point that you touch on there, Flick. We talk a lot about the fact that this isn't just an environmental movement. There's social like results, but also social needs to come into the whole picture. And when you talk about South Africa in the late 90s, you're talking about a society that's in a a deep moment of change. There's already change happening. There's a lot of like, you know, there's just a lot of shifting and uncertainty, I suppose. But within that, as you say, there's that understanding that people can make an impact, that there is room for change, that there's, you know, that systems don't have to stay the same forever. And then you spoke about the UK in the late 90s and this idea that it's like okay we do the same as we've always done and then sort of fix it a bit at the end when we realize the outcome isn't what we wanted it to be and that really speaks to me about this idea of like how people understand that change is possible you know maybe being in a moment of change is a way that collectively we can understand change is possible even like looking bringing us up to date we've seen that maybe in recent years now with social changes have come hand in hand with all kinds of hopeful movement in the environmental space. And yeah, I just think that's a really interesting example that you gave us. I think you're right. Going back to when I was working in the Global Action Plan, a lot of what we tried to do was to not not share the doom and gloom. And I, it's really interesting because I, I would very much try not to guilt trip people because their lives, you know, dragons, if you look at the old maps, it's if you start to guilt trip people and make them feel bad about their choices, then you generally either fairly quickly or eventually come to a point where they can't function anymore. They can't continue because it's like, well, I'm making these choices for all good reasons. You know, my kids need it or I need it or I'm in a hurry or it's all I have available or I can't afford or whatever. They're applying logic and value and realistic, reasonable logic to everything. So if you tell them they're still doing the wrong thing rather than helping them kind of come up with better solutions, then they probably won't follow through on things. They probably won't do something different because it's too hard. And I think, yeah, that hope, piece, that kind of ability to see solutions and see ideas and see people doing things differently and have choices and recognize them as choices and solve their barriers, you know, overcome their barriers. That's what helps people and businesses and governments and policymakers to actually flip the switch and make changes. And from a circular economy perspective, there's no quick fix. There's no quick fix for climate change. There's no quick fix for plastic pollution. There's no quick fix. Circular economy is not a quick fix. It's a series, a kind of sometimes quite complex steps, but it allows us to step back and say, okay, 
look, let's look at things in the round. Let's look at the whole life cycle. Let's look at the whole system. And and here's some ideas here and here's some ideas here. Well, I think this is it. When you do that, you start to see examples and you start to see ideas. And that helps to give you that hope and it helps to understand kind of, again, you mentioned the social aspect. It, it's fascinating. Not everything is about how companies do things, but equally how companies' choices impact on society is very complex. And we're not always able to see that straight on. And if we are able to see it, we can justify it. It's like, yes, but we're doing this because type thing. And it's, yeah, it's a really fascinating space. I think a lot of the conversation at the minute is around that social piece. What is the impact and what's, you know, whether it's a benefit or a negative impact on society, what's the, and but also on sustainability more broadly and, and bring in that whole social aspect into sustainability and, you know, are circular solutions sustainable? Are they socially beneficial? It's a fascinating space at the minute because they aren't all. If we work on that model of just keep doing things as we were and fix it at the end, then it seems obvious that the social impact isn't going to be as beneficial as it could be, you know, that that isn't the right way around of doing it. But I like that you brought sort of that old fashioned idea that shaming people or like telling people off is the way to make change. And, you know, shame is crippling. I mean, that's unfortunately kind of a modern realization, but shame is crippling. And this hope, this like opportunity, it seems much more persuasive. Yeah, it is. It's interesting, though, because as I was telling you that, I was thinking, but there's one difference. There's one difference in the whole space that certainly that I was in, and I think a lot of people were in then, although, and I still fundamentally believe that it's, you can't just tell people they're doing the wrong thing without giving them some form of hope or some sort of form of alternative that's realistic and, and valuable to them. The one thing that's different is I think at the time we didn't always talk about why it matters and didn't always give a really strong understanding of why it's important, but in a non-judgy way. And, and I think that's the difference with now. I think people are recognising, I mean, whether it's an IPPC report or a, a kind of something on ESG or whether it's something on green claims, we have to actually explain why it's important. We have to speak up. We have to tell people what's happening at the minute in any particular situation isn't working because if we don't do that as well, it's too easy to say, oh, that's lovely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's lovely. You fundamentally believe that. Get off your soapbox, you know, basically. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. So just changing gear slightly, let's try and bring that conversation we just had and be a little bit more concrete our real world if we can. Do you have stories or examples that you can share that kind of bring that to life a little bit? Yeah, got a few. I've worked with some really interesting companies and done some very interesting projects, I guess, over the years. I think one of my favorite examples is probably a small company in Scotland, in the north of Scotland, called Loch Dirt. Um, they are a salmon farmer and their aspiration is to be as sustainable as possible. Salmon farming is very controversial. However, they farm salmon and they... Like I say, they try and do it in as sustainable as way as possible. One of their aspirations is to become, I guess, the most sustainable salmon producer. But what they were struggling with was ensuring that the data that they were collecting was the right information and that they were interpreting it in a way that was appropriate. So one of the things that we did with them was to help, I guess, collect a massive amount of data from across their operations, looking at how they produced salmon, looking at their outputs, looking at their waste, looking at their inputs to help them to create some form of sustainability picture. But then, I guess, from a circularity perspective and from a complexity perspective, mapping it back to a number of different standards to help them to understand how they benchmarked and how they, whether or not they could achieve those standards in order to then validate and verify, I guess, their performance so that it was understandable by their stakeholders, by their 
customers, by the consumers, and that it made sense to them. So I think the reason I mentioned that one is because one of the challenges that people have, I guess, individuals have as consumers, but also organizations have, is how to ensure that what they're saying, A, makes sense to consumers, B, helps them um, to understand how they're improving, and C, I mean, going forward from a perspective of kind of legislation and green claims and ESG reporting is appropriate and reasonable. That's a brilliant example. Because you mentioned complexity there. I think that's one of the themes that's definitely coming through in everything we talk about in the circular economy, especially in this season of the podcast, about how kind of we need to step in or embrace that complexity and start to look at it without roast into glasses or without, you know, narrowing it down into sound bites or anything. But you're talking there about what must have been a relative, uh, quite a complex data gathering information of understanding this quite complex mini ecosystem around a salmon farm. So that's an interesting technical question. <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting people and understanding, you know, there's so much complexity there that, um, I mean, I get excited because that's this kind of thing that we should be doing is we shouldn't be going, well, let's ignore this complex problem or let's let it just happen and try and patch it at the end, as, as Emily was saying earlier. But let's try and step into that complexity and really look and see what can we understand what's, without getting stuck in analysis paralysis, but what can we understand and what tools we can use and how and processes and people we need to speak to in order to then, exactly as you just said, use that information both to be accurate when we speak to the world, but also to enable further change. And that's really interesting. I think that's it. I mean, that was a specific example, but just you know, pulling back a little bit, that it's a bit like the complexity of circular economy requires a kind of a complex answer within a business chunked up enough so that people don't, like you say, trip up on, don't get paralyzed with either the scale or because you just don't know what to do with the information, you don't know what to make of it, you don't know how to kind of analyze it and you don't know what story it's telling. I think it's that kind of having a vision and that vision might be narrow. It might be, we just want to understand what we're doing or it might be we want to implement circular economy. You know, we want to be a circular business, which nobody really understands fully what that means, right? In reality, the full, yes, we can write it down and there's a butterfly diagram and we can give a definition of it. But what it truly actually means to be a circular business in a system that's circular, that doesn't exist at the minute. You know, that's a, a kind of concept that the three of us want to happen and we are working towards, actively working towards. But you've got to start with that vision. You've got to start with that kind of, this is my plan. This is what I want to achieve to then understand how you're not achieving it. I think that kind of then looking, it's like, okay, what do I know? How do I measure that? What information do I need? How do I know whether I've achieved any aspect of circularity? How do I, you know, am I mapping myself to a standard? Am I mapping myself to myself? Am I counting? And can I even count it? You know, that whole kind of necessary unpicking and then kind of building it back together once you've done that, it then allows you to kind of say, okay, where are the gaps? You know, what are my contracts currently not giving me? What could they give me? What can we work together to do? What do I need somebody new for? Do I need a new system in place within my organization? Do I need to ask my, you know, department heads different questions? Do I need to ask my suppliers different questions? So I think all of these things, you know, Lockdure is an example of that where they've said, okay, we grow salmon. We do it as sustainably as possible. We use as few chemicals as possible. We measure this in the things in a specific way, we transport in a specific way, but actually we don't do sustainability reporting. So I think some of that is better done 
by consultants like you guys, by people within any number of organizations, whether I've worked for them or other organizations do that. And sometimes just that kind of allowing somebody else to step back and say, okay, look, let's reflect back our information back to you, which is a lot of what I think circular economy consultants do. Well, certainly I do and other people do is just saying, okay, let's collect it all. Let's reflect it back to you. Let's help you visualize it, help you map it, help you see it through kind of independent eyes and then help you to kind of change identify where you can change and then put in the plan in place in order to make those changes. So whether that's kind of route mapping and we've certainly done a lot of route mapping with a number of organizations, people like Heathrow, you know, whether it's a, a kind of fundamental circular economy net zero kind of route map to say, okay, this is our target. It's in our strategy. It says we're going to do circular economy. We must do it. But how on earth do we get there from where we are now? You know, how far how close are we? What actions do we need to take? And, and how do we kind of allocate those actions and make people responsible for them and understand what we're measuring? You know, what are we expecting out of those different actions? What proportion of change are we expecting? So I think there's a lot that companies need to do. And and I, I guess I'm not currently a consultant, so I can say that now, but without it being a total vested interest. But I think there's a lot of help out there, whether it's paid consultancy, whether it's, you know, projects like Re London and or Zero Waste Scotland or the group in Wales who, you know, can actually offer SMEs kind of free support. I think that having somebody else look at it for you can be very helpful. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. I mean, I think the question you just asked there is of describing, because I think so many businesses are facing this question. We want to get there or we've got a strategy, we've got a headline or a goal, whether it's a net zero or circularity or both. But okay, then, then we've got this gap in the middle of how we get from there to here. And so we often talk about two things. One is not doing it alone, but also it doesn't need to happen all in one giant step. In fact, it can't you need to do that sort of small, fast steps, uh, trying to work things out as you go without shying away or hiding the scale of the problem, which is going harks back to what you were saying before about change, not sort of hiding the problem, but also at the same time, not using the shame equivalent for business is only that of saying, well, this needs to change, but we can do it. There's a sort of double-edged sword there. There's also a phrase that stuck with me that you said earlier on in our conversation when you said making a choice or seeing a choice and realizing it's a choice. And I wonder, at the time, I think we were talking about sort of individual choice, but I wonder if there's, if what it made me think of is what we're talking about now is the business level, sort of as a business, we can look at some of these things that we do that we've always done or that society and economy makes us do because it's the most efficient at the moment. So what are the things that we can change there? And that ties back to getting data and understanding. But my question is, I think, is have you seen that the theme or the pattern where in order for businesses to start to make changes and maybe make faster changes is the bigger blocker okay how do we gather the data how do we understand what we're seeing or is the bigger blocker sort of people and kind of whether that's an understanding and motivation or a, a lack of momentum or something to change i think they're both interrelated i mean they're obviously both interrelated but i think it's interesting one of the things i do is i'm on the aima so the institute of environmental management and assessment so the aima circular economy network steering group. So IEMA have a series of practice networks and circular economy network is one of those. And the steering group is a group of maybe 15 of us from lots of different sectors and organizations. And our job is to try and kind of look at what's happening out there, look at companies, what they're doing, look at policy, look at what's happening currently, what's being consulted on and engage the network, whether it's responding to a policy or whether it's creating content in the form of webinars or tools or, or whatever. And one of the things we're looking at, we're looking at a series of things this year, but one of the things we're looking at this year is circular economy business models and how people use them and how they engage with them. And we are developing 
it's changed forms, interestingly. It's changed forms quite a lot over the last few months. It started with a kind of small, fairly distinct mini version. I'm calling them mini versions and, and Rolls-Royce versions at the minute, but a mini version, which was a kind of what are the barriers, what are the objections that people are faced with, basically. So say within an organization, they recognize a need to kind of look at circularity. They want to use it. But they're getting stopped. And, and that might be because people are saying, what's the financial reason? What's the evidence? And they just don't have that at their fingertips. So we started to kind of develop the kind of objections and enablers. And that grew arms and legs and became a bit too generic because and we needed to narrow it down. And we kind of realized we needed to at least theme it, at the very least theme it. So we developed these three themes like fast fashion. And we kind of then started to narrow that down and say, okay, within this space, what are the key problems? What are the objections that people have? And how can we help individuals within our network to overcome those? What are the the kind of arguments against those objections? And what are the examples? So we started to develop, what are the case studies? And it was that whole kind of theme through. So we started to develop this list of evidence, you know, the numbers, the hard numbers, whether that's financial savings, financial gain, whether that's percentage change, whether that's opportunity and hard examples of which is loads of kind of case studies and out there, but just trying to contextualize them, which then developed again. And it's become potentially quite a, a large kind of online digital resource kind of curated with everything in it, starting from a kind of circular economy definitions across to the evidence that people can tap into. Exactly what it's going to end up in, in the short term remains to be seen. But I think the key thing is there is giving people that kind of information, that evidence, that the numbers, the hard finances, which allow them to make those changes and allow them to kind of address the inaction that sits at a corporate level and actually shift that balance. So I think it's all kind of tied together. Yes, that sounds amazing, by the way, when and if that goes, when that goes live, definitely let us know. It will go live. Exactly what it's going to look like in the first instance, I don't know, because it, we shared it with the members and we realized that I think the network naturally, we're operating at a certain level, but we actually need to tie it back to the beginning yeah. to a kind of first principles and then take yeah. it to where we wanted it to be. But it sounds amazing because that is exactly where so many people and so many businesses are. They're kind of seeing a, a direction to go, but there are kind of questions or barriers in the way. And being and beauty in my mind is when you find the right balance of business, whether it's literal business model change or, or steps on the way to that, is alignment of incentives, right? The perfect circularity. We should be able to align business incentives with the important environmental considerations with some of the social stuff if we can just redefine some of the, the structure around that. Exactly. And I think some of that redefinition comes from we're actually asking better questions and getting better information back. So I think that conversation we touched on, Emily, your question about the social aspects and also things like natural capital and the kind of real deep understanding. We know there's an environmental impact. You know, we can see pollution, we can see waste arising, we can see it in the wrong place. But what's the actual impact on the environment and how can we understand that in a way that allows us to make better decisions about the right things. You know, how can we actually understand that natural capital impact? I think a lot of these, the more detail, the more nuance is coming about because people are asking better questions and not just how much is it going to cost, which is obviously very important. Fundamentally, it kind of comes back down from a business case perspective. And even within the network steering group, we, what's the financial impact of that? And how can you, you know, businesses are not going to make a change unless they can see what the change is going to cost and what are they going to get out of it? And I think there's no getting around that. We still have to answer the money question. The difference is that we can answer the money question in a more mature way. And it's not how much am I going to get? And that's the end of it, because that's very linear, isn't it? It's more, it's kind of, 
you know, how much am I going to spend less? How much am I going to, at the beginning and at the end? And how can my process shift in order to retain that value for longer? And how can I make decisions which change the durability of my project, which means that the kind of cost is spread over a longer period of time? And I think a lot of these questions are like that. It becomes a more mature discussion if we're asking better questions and we're collecting not just single sources of data, we're collecting more data over a kind of bigger space, I guess. Maybe we're coming to the end. I think that's what Barry was about to say. And before we do, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about, it can be big. It can be like intense work that has to be done and like heavy questions and just a lot of heavy stuff. So my final question for you, Fleur, is in all of this, what brings you hope? What brings me hope is that people are increasingly willing to engage, to kind of hold that complexity in their hands and still not panic and drop it all and run. You know, I've changed jobs from consultancy recently to work for Toplytics because it's creating the ability for people to make those decisions, to hold that complexity and understand it, that kind of helping to actually collect and understand data on waste, which is, yes, still the end point, but increasingly we're pushing it further into the, the kind of organization and look at not waste in terms of how materials are used and how they're produced and as waste or within the process and actually tracing that, you know, into what happens next to it, what's the fate of that material, where does it go next? And and then also helping them to say, okay, I now have a better picture of one part of it. I have a better picture of what's happening at the end of use, at the end of production, at the end of life of a product. And how can I then build that back in? How can I use that to kind of make change? So to me, the hope is that like I say, we're asking better questions, but also there's a lot of organizations out there who are making changes, who are talking about it, who are sharing that information. And the more choices that people have, the more that they can say, okay, actually, that's really similar to my organization. I'm a manufacturing business. I could do that. Or, you know, I'm a producer of consumer goods and look at all these examples. You know, I don't just have to produce it quickly and, and sell it and just keep doing that as quickly as possible in order for this to work. I could have a different model. I could be a mud jeans, you know, and have a, a different model where retaining the ownership of that. I could be a cell and, you know, my computer is refurbished and this is an organization. It's not just the computer that's refurbished that I get bought for my son earlier in the year. This is a, a work computer and it's as new. You know, there's choices that people have now and they're, they're solid business models. You know, there's information that's actually enabling proper business decisions that people are using. I've got huge heaps of hope in terms of where we're going. It's more mature. It's a stronger place to be. And we can, you know, we're increasingly able to link that. You know, if you look at the recent Circularity Gap report or the recent IPPC report, you know, it's fundamentally saying if we engage with this space, if we use our materials in a more sensitive and appropriate manner and we understand the data and we use it properly, we will change the balance. So I think, yeah, I've got enormous amounts of hope. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's a pretty amazing, good way to finish. I like that so much. So for those who are listening, who want to find out more about the work that you do, to find out more about Toplytics, where you are now, where should they go? So they can find me on LinkedIn. If you want to find out more about Toplytics, it's www.toplytics.com. And you'll find on there some videos about WasteMap, which is the product that I was talking about earlier, and some of the work that we're doing with Innovate UK. As usual, we'll put the links to that and everything we've mentioned in this episode on hypercourseradio.com in the show notes. Thank you, Fleur. I really appreciate it. That was an amazing conversation. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks, Barry and Emily. Appreciate it.
Thank you, Fleur. Thank you for listening to this episode of Happy Porch Radio. You can find past episodes, transcripts, and show notes at happyporchradio.com. You can also get in touch with us there and let us know what you think or if you have any ideas or comments. Please rate the podcast, share and subscribe so that more people can find the show. Thanks for listening. My name's Barry O'Kane. I founded Happy Porch, who fund and support this podcast. At Happy Porch, we do technology and software development for purpose-led businesses, and we're particularly excited about the role of digital as an enabler for the circular economy. If you're working on solutions to the big problems we face today, problems like climate change, biodiversity loss and global inequality, then let's connect. Visit happyporch.com and get in touch. And I'm Emily Swaddle, podcaster, coach, facilitator, and storyteller. You can find me on my other podcast, The Carbon Removal Show. And you can find out more about that project and everything else I do at emilyswaddle.com, where you can also subscribe to my newsletter, All About Rest. If you're interested in anything I do, feel free to connect. You can email me on hello at emilyswaddle.com. Hold up. 